Could we continue then our, our journey in the book of Malachi? Malachi was uh, addressing uh, a people who were longing for a new move of God, but confused as to why it wasn't happening. Where was this God who had done such great things, who could move in such great power, and there they were longing that he would do it again, and wondering why it wasn't their experience. And already they've heard that despite the evidence uh, that they see to the contrary, God had not stopped loving them. That was the point of chapter 1. God still loved them. He hadn't forsaken them. In fact, on the contrary, rather than God abandoning them or forsaking them, they themselves had forsaken Him. They'd forsaken Him in their worship. They were bringing crippled old sheep for sacrifice. They were offering sloppy, half-hearted worship that failed to engage their hearts. They'd forsaken him in their lifestyles. As we saw in chapter 2, the the leaders were corrupt and all over the place. Their relationships were compromised. The promises, even their marriage promises, were being broken. Yet, at the beginning of chapter 3, the the grace of God, the great promise of God, that even if they now were to seek the Lord, He would come to His temple. His blessing would once more be known His presence would again be felt. But how could they seek Him wholeheartedly? How could they pray with all their hearts as we thought about last uh, Sunday unless their worship and their lifestyle was back on track? And now as we begin uh, uh, a little bit further in chapter 3, there are other aspects to their lifestyle that they would need to address if they were going to truly seek God with all of their hearts and see Him come to His temple. Let's uh, follow it together. I hope it's open still in front of you. Uh, Verse 6 starts with great promise. I, the Lord, do not change. What an encouraging way uh, to start. In a changing world, God doesn't change. His love, His faithfulness, His power, His mercy and grace are all undiminished despite the passing of the years. We might think in our hearts that God does change. We might be tempted to believe that in some way God is not as powerful as He was in the Old Testament when He separated the sea and He sent the plagues to Egypt and He led the people into the Promised Land. We might be tempted to think that God is somehow not quite as powerful as He was when Jesus was alive and even blind eyes were opened and once or twice, and three times in fact, the dead were raised. We might be tempted to think that as time has gone on, so has God's ability to do life-transforming things weakened. And we can be guilty of losing confidence in God's ability to change people's lives. Somehow, the stories of God's changing people's lives always seem to us to be past tense. Even the recent ones, you know, uh, we try to think of what? A, a trendy story of God changing people's lives and we go to the cross on the switchblade or something like that, which shows my age and yours even more. And uh, as a whole generation of people, I have no idea now what I'm talking about. But it's as if in our psyche, our consciousness, when God does great things, it's always in the past. That's what God used to do. 
You know, he used to do things like the Nicky Cruises through the people like David Wilkinson. He used to do the Jackie Pullinger kind of stuff, the revival in Hong Kong, but he doesn't do that anymore. Somehow with the passing of time, his power has waned. Malachi goes, no, no, it's dead simple. One, two, three, four, five, six words. I, the Lord, do not change. But then he puts it into a particular context. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, me, descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Having spent almost two chapters talking about their worship and their lifestyle, highlighting the people's waywardness, their sinfulness, their blatant disregard for God, even though it was all cloaked up in religiosity, they still did their worship, they did their stuff, but it was all uh, 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 cold and half-hearted and uh, and weak. Despite all of that, you are still not destroyed. Malachi's point is this. You deserve judgment. We don't think like that very much. In fact, a little bit later on in Malachi, we're going to have to face it quite head on that our God is a judging God. He is a consuming fire. And for now, Malachi just just sort of edges us in gently. The Lord doesn't change, and he might have said all kinds of things. The Lord doesn't change, therefore his power is just as real today. The Lord doesn't change, therefore his love is just as real. He goes, no, the Lord doesn't change, therefore you have not been judged. You haven't been destroyed. Ironically, the people of God were thinking that it was God himself that should be judged. You see, they were thinking, hey, this is, it's God who's been unfaithful. He's the one that's abandoned us. If He hadn't abandoned us, there'd be blessing and power and love and grace. It's God that somehow has been wayward in His love for us. God who hadn't stuck by them. God should be judged. And in a single verse, Malachi turns the tables, flips the coin, turns it upside down. The judgment is theirs, not God. And how quick we can be to blame God for our own failures. Have you ever done that? That's just me. Thought it might be. Just me. Do you know in our lives, <clears throat> we're so uh, looking for to pass the judgment. As Eve said straight away, it wasn't me. Adam would say that it wasn't me. It wasn't me. And so often we say, why God, when the answer is us? And these people in Malachi, they're going, why God, why have you abandoned us? And God's kind of going, well, you should know. You should know. What irony, we're so quick to judge heaven when heaven is so slow to judge us. You haven't been destroyed. God hasn't judged you like He could have. He hasn't given you what you deserved. And yet we're so quick to judge God, yet He's so slow in judging us. He is slow in anger, still abounding in love. And there they are pointing the finger at Him, complaining about His unfaithfulness. And Malachi says, you've got to see straight. You've got to see straight. Sometimes as Christians we can be demanding and presumptuous about God's forgiveness, can't we? How many times have we just assumed that God will forgive me because that's what God does, that's his job. 
And we act like he has no heart, he has no feelings. Uh, that we, we act like he's not made, uh, sorry, we're not made in his image as a, as a mirror of the way God feels and loves and, and cares. And we go, well, of course God will forgive me, that's his job. That's what he must do. Ha! In fact, in the New Testament they're saying, why don't we sin a lot more and then God will have to forgive us a lot more and that will prove how good God really is. Now there's a thought. But that's what they were thinking. So, so, so presumptuous about God's forgiveness. He has to, he's God. Stand amazed, says Malachi, that you haven't been condemned. It's a different way of thinking about it, isn't it? Stand amazed that you haven't been condemned. And I don't think that these people in Malachi's day were really terribly bad any worse than we are. Stand amazed that you haven't been condemned. And uh, uh, some people who write prolifically, I hate to mention his name, like John Piper and so on, uh, draw a thread through the Bible uh, that says, that, that, and highlights very clearly that the Bible spends a lot of its time being amazed that God doesn't condemn us, whereas we spend a lot of our time presuming that God will forgive us. Malachi says, don't presume. Don't presume. It's because God doesn't change that you haven't been destroyed. It's because God is faithful that you haven't been judged. See it straight, verse 7. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. So, hey, where in our lives do we not see it straight? Where in our church do we not see it straight? Where are we thinking it's God's problem when actually it's ours? Where are we blaming God for not showing up and doing his stuff when actually we're not doing what we should do? Where am I blaming God when in fact it's my lack of responsibility? It's where I've turned away and I've in turning away, I've taken myself outside the blessing. And there I am outside of the blessing saying, God, why aren't you blessing me? And he says, look where you're standing. Look what you're doing. Look where you are. Sometimes we're so used to standing where we are. Sometimes we're so used to looking at what we look at, we go, what's wrong with this God? People in Malachi say, what's wrong? We're still turning up for worship. We're still doing our bit at the temple. What's the big deal here? It's time to stop apportioning the blame. It's time to take responsibility. Return to me, second part of verse 7, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, now this is a dangerous question. Don't ask this question. But you ask, how are we to return? How do we take responsibility? How do we stop blaming God for his lack of blessing and start taking responsibility for our behaviour? And the place God goes to in response was a shock to them and probably a shock to us. You see, he goes straight to their money. And you can almost imagine the people, they haven't quite recovered from chapter 2 when God's put his finger on their marriages. And you can almost hear them reeling just like we would do. God wants to interfere in my marriage. Now he wants to interfere in my money. Does God want to interfere in everything in my life? Oh, you're catching on. Uh, Yes. You know, marriage, money. uh, where, where, Where can it go? It can't get worse than this. Why money? Probably because money gets to the heart 
of the matter. When somebody says it's not the money, it's the principle, it's the money. Somehow gets to the heart. We can be very generous until it comes to our money. Voltaire, who wasn't a Christian, interestingly enough, when it comes to a man's wallet, every person's religion is the same. And that's why maybe God chooses money because it gets to the heart of our lives. Jesus often, far too often for our liking, made the connection between what was going on in our hearts and the way we use our money. It would have been better for all of us if he hadn't. The best example, I guess, is Zacchaeus. The main point of the story of Zacchaeus is that God especially loves little people, but there are other points to draw out of the story. For example, when Zacchaeus uh, uh, decides because of his waywardness, he goes, okay, I'm going uh, to uh, stop stealing off people and I'm going to pay back four times the stuff that I have uh, stolen. You might imagine Jesus saying, well done, Zacchaeus. That's a really good thing to do. Jesus doesn't. Jesus says, today, salvation has come to this house. Jesus judged the reality of the man's salvation by what he did with his money. If on becoming a Christian, what we've done with our money hasn't changed, what does that say? Or what would Jesus say about the reality of our salvation? Less known is what happened uh, in the days of John the Baptist, who shares a middle name with Winnie the Pooh. John the Baptist, when asked for uh, a proof of conversion, talked about three things. How how, how do we know? This is a question. How do we know that a conversion is real? John the Baptist says it goes like this. You'll, you'll You'll see three things called the fruits of repentance. One, you'll share your clothes and food with the poor. It's an interesting marker about whether you're saved or not. Second thing, Tax collectors should stop collecting and pocketing extra money. Well, that's okay because we're not tax collectors. But the point is this. Stop taking what isn't yours. And the soldiers were not to exhort money and be content with their wages. Be content with their wages. Be content with your wages. As a measure of the reality, the truth of the change that's happened in your heart. In all three cases, the proof of spiritual change was an altered perspective on the way we handle our money. Randy Alcorn writes, Money is a litmus test of our true character. It is an index of our spiritual life. Our stewardship of money tells a deep and consequential story. It forms our biography. In a sense, how we relate to money and possessions is the story of our lives. So it gets to the heart of the matter because it reveals true change. Secondly, it gets to the heart of the matter because money reveals who's controlling our lives. We act like money is neutral a lot of the time. It doesn't have a power, it's just there. It's neither good nor bad and in a sense that might be so. But if we think that money has no power or control over us, then I think, quite obviously, looking at the world in which we live, we deceive ourselves. Jesus said, be very careful about money, because it is as powerful as a God. 
No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus personifies money. The capital M of money or mammon is rival to the capital G of God. It's not some impersonal medium of exchange, morally neutral, but it is a power that seeks to control us and if we let it, will devour us. Either we control money or be controlled by it. Either we master it or it will master us. Money, says Jeffrey Lafferty, is like everything that has a mass exerting a gravitational pull on our lives. It can so easily draw us into its orbit. And there's nobody here that hasn't felt that pull. And maybe like me, you resent the idea that money somehow has a power over us. We're bigger and better and more sophisticated than that, surely. You're objective in your decision-making, aren't you? Surely. You pray hard about the decisions that you make, and rightly so. But how scary to reflect the dominance with which money has played in nearly all the decisions of our lives. We see this in the whole of life. Money is a power looking for omnipotence, total power. Money will not settle to be alongside other things we value. It always goes for supreme dominance. You could understand, couldn't you, the poor scrabbling to get more money? You'd understand that, wouldn't you? You'd understand people digging around in the dirt to get more money to feed their kids. But why do the super rich lie and steal to get more? Why do the middle classes, the ordinary people, have so much more than most in the world, wreck their lives on the altar of a little bit more? Why do we scurry around in the dirt for the more? And why do people struggling with debts carry the latest phones? And why do some have satellite dishes when their children need new shoes? You see, whether you have a lot or whether you have a little, there is a power that's seeking to devour us. Let's not kid ourselves that it's neutral. Jesus says, it's, hey, it's a God. It's a God. It will rival me. And maybe Malachi, or God through Malachi, goes to money because it gets at the heart of the matter because it reveals at the end of the day our true commitment. All of you were baptized into Christ and clothed yourselves with Christ. In other words, who are you committed to and how much of your life is committed to it? When the Crusaders uh, were being uh, fought during the 12th century, they employed mercenaries to fight on their behalf because it was a religious war, whatever that means. Totally ridiculous, absurd idea. The Crusaders insisted on the mercenaries being baptized before they fight but they were allowed to keep their sword-bearing hand out of the water. I'll give you all, but not this hand. I'll give you all, but not this hand. You may have heard me tell the story. Next weekend, uh, uh, I'll be in Romania with some others from uh, this church. Uh, I'm preaching there about now. Uh, pray for my sermon and pray for Otti's interpretation of my sermon, probably more importantly than mine. And there is a, a chap, in fact, he's died now, called Bon Banal. 
And Bombonel always uh, tells the story of a, a gypsy that came to Christ. And he asked to be baptized, but keep his hand out of the water. It was the hand he would use to pickpocket and to steal so his children might live. It's a challenge, isn't it, giving it all to Christ? For your hand, for your wallet, as John Wesley put it, to go under the water. Martin Luther talked of three conversions, the heart, the mind, and the purse. Wesley, the last part of a person to be converted is his wallet or pocketbook. So God goes to the people in Malachi's day, let's talk about money now. You're going, where's the blessing? God goes, hmm, let's talk about money for a moment. <gasps> let's talk about money. So what did God say? Well, hang on to your seats. Back to Malachi there, open in front of you. Will a man rob God? Hey, what a ridiculous statement. Isn't that totally absurd, the idea that we could rob from God? How ridiculous that human beings can rob from the Almighty. It's like suggesting that an ant puts on a black mask with two little eyes, that an ant gets a little weapon under its leg or under its arm and creeps up behind an elephant to mug it. And the little ant all in the black is bashing away at the little elephant's foot. The elephant doesn't even notice. How can an ant possibly mug an elephant? How can we possibly rob from God in any way? How can we plunder the one who owns the whole universe? But God's not laughing. And he doesn't seem to see it as a joke. He doesn't get the joke. Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. The language is really strong. Rob is take by force what isn't yours. God isn't saying, um, you seem to have accidentally misappropriated some funds. You seem to have taken that pen inadvertently that wasn't yours. The language is aggressive, strong, and violent. God is saying, it's like this. It's like you're, you're coming at me with force and you're robbing me. These are the Christians. These are God's people he's speaking to. We might understand the surprise. Come on, God, let's not get this out of proportion. Let's not overreact. How have we robbed you? Still, God doesn't laugh or lighten the mood. But just very matter of fact, he says it's simple. It's like this. You've robbed me in your tithes and in your offerings. The tithe Bible says is the first 10% of what you have. And that should be God's. Your offering is anything you give above the 10%. Your tithes and your offerings. The people were gobsmacked, or perhaps more literally, God smacked by what they were hearing. To rob or steal from another human being was to break one of the Ten Commandments. They would have celebrated every week at their worship that we're good people because we keep the Ten Commandments. We don't, we don't lie and we don't commit adultery and we don't murder and we don't steal. And God says, actually, it's not just that you're stealing, but you're stealing from me. God seems to take it very seriously. Why? Because God says this. It's left you under a curse. They're going, where's the blessing? God, where are you? Why aren't you blessing us right now? And God says, look at what you're doing. You've left yourself under a curse. Sometimes we think, don't we, that the people outside might be under a curse. They're under the judgment of God, but somehow in here it's safe. Ever thought like that? And God says, hey, you, you could be under a curse. Not just those people outside, but you, me. People were going, we want the blessing. 
Where is the blessing? And God says your behavior has taken you not only outside of the blessing, but your behavior has taken you under the curse. Do we want the blessing? How much? How much do we want the blessing? Do we want it enough to sort out our worship, to sort out the way that we lead, to sort out our marriages? Do we want it enough to sort out our money? Over the years, many Christians have not wanted the blessing that much. Over the years, many people have said, well, the tax man wants 20%, 40%, the rest. God only wants 10%, but that's too much. How much do we want the blessing? And people have excused themselves, sought good reason why this particular thing, which is a bit awkward and a bit uncomfortable, we'd probably be better off not to talk about it and just all carry on. And they said, well, okay, but the tithe got talked about in the Old Testament and we're not in the Old Testament now, yippee, we're in the New Testament. Only problem with that is that Jesus said, give to God what's God's. And the only way to understand that, because Jesus was a Jew, is that in the Old Testament, say what was God's was the first 10%. Jesus says, make sure you give to God what's God's. So Jesus says, okay, the tithe has been going all through the Old Testament, now we're in the New Testament, still do that. Oh dear. And then we might think, well, okay, we're not under the law anymore, so we don't follow all the rules and all that stuff. Thank goodness for that. But the tithe came way before the law, way before the rules, Abraham tithe. But forget about those two things for a moment. Just think about this with me. Christ, in the New Testament, has set us free, hasn't he? (laughs) We're not sure how free it is just now, are we? (laughs) Christ has set us free. Why? What for? To do what is right or to do what is wrong? Christ has set us free to do what is right. And if it was right for everybody in the Old Testament to give their first 10%, when the only thing that was being sacrificed was sheep and goats, and the Holy Spirit had not been given, how much more should we give our 10% when what has been sacrificed is the life, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ? When the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the church, when we are living in the blessing, the fullness of the kingdom that's coming. Whichever way you look at it, I think the obligation on us is somehow greater. So no, you might be right, we don't have to tithe. We probably ought to do better than that. And somebody's thinking, who asked him to preach today? The emphasis, though, is different here. Uh, over, the, over, the years, uh, over the years, this church has been incredibly generous in its giving. Incredibly, I mean, incredibly generous in its giving. All kinds of examples, not least uh, the church centre. But the emphasis here is different. The emphasis is not giving because there is a need. The emphasis here is giving because God asks. And that's enough. Because God asks. And let's face it. And let's face it. How much money would we be able to pour into mission? How much money could we pour back into this community? How much money could we release to eliminate poverty and proclaim Jesus? So the Apostle Paul sets the agenda like this. He says, it's not about trying to meet a particular target, but it's because God asks. So because God asks on the first day of every week, that's when they kind of gathered their first fruits and went to worship for us. It might be the first day of the month or the end day of the month, whatever it might be. Each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. Just because God asks. Now obviously, we live in the real world, don't we? 
And times are really hard. And maybe getting harder. At least times are uncertain. And people are tightening their belts. And what if we can't afford it? Uh, We feel the weight of that. And I don't stand here as if that doesn't exist. I share in your lives. I know the weight of that. The pressure that that is. I know the uncertainty that there is about our jobs and our future. And all of that. But there are two things, perhaps. Maybe three. We have a Heavenly Father who knows that much more than we do, don't we? See, this is our loving Heavenly Father. This is not some different God, okay? This is not some Old Testament quirky, angry God, which by the time we get to the New Testament, kind of God's got it out of his system. God doesn't change, remember? Same God. Our our Father, who, who, who the Bible says, look at the lilies and see how they get clothed. Look at the sparrows and see how they get fed. Look at the hairs on your head and know that God has numbered them as a reminder to you that he watches every detail of your lives. Who cares more than we might ever imagine. Who knows and understands every penny that you have, where every penny has to go. That knows all the concerns and the pressures on your heart. He says, hey, Bring the whole tithe. Come under the blessing by bringing the whole tithe. And know what Paul said. That God is able to make all grace abound. So that in all things, having all that you need, you'll abound in every good work. God says is enough will be enough. Second observation is this. No one seems to lose out. I've never heard of anyone saying, hey, deep in my heart, I I committed to this principle before God, and God ruined me. And God ruined me. In fact, many stories. In fact, some of you have told me stories even this week as you knew what was coming on Sunday. I'm going to ask Margaret to come and just share uh, a few words around this theme. No one seems to lose out. Well, When I was about um, 17, maybe 18, I remember chatting with my uh, Sunday school superintendent about um, giving to the church. And he started off by saying, well, it's like this. When I get my wages each week, I take out 10% and I put that aside for God, for the church. Uh, before I even think of spending anything at all. And I was really impressed by this because he was ever so poorly paid and he didn't have much money. I knew that. And uh, I sort of said to him, well, well, what if one week you were really struggling and you thought, well, I can't really give it this week. And his reply has really um, stayed with me all these years. He said, God has never, ever let me down. He said, he's really blessed me. He's honored the fact that I give him that. And it's just amazing what he does for me, the blessing that I know. And, you know, it's, it's 55 years now since he said that to me, but I'll never forget it. And, yes, I've proved that he was right.
interesting word that Margaret uses, isn't it? Prove. Prove. Look at what it says here about proving God. See, some of us would like some more proof about God, wouldn't we? In fact, more importantly, some of us would like some proof about God for others, friends and family that aren't here this morning. There, prove. Trouble with the Bible is it never starts off from that basis. The Bible doesn't try to prove God. It just says, God, He's there. That's just the way it is. You can't prove it or deny it. That's just how it is. Over the years, people have come up with all kinds of proofs. But yet here, God gets as close as ever to offering a proof. Test me in this. I'll prove myself to you in this. And verse 12 would lead us to suggest, just a couple of lines down, that that proving would impact even the nations. That somehow in this matter, it unlocks the closest we might get to the proof about God. And here we are longing to prove to the world that God exists. And God kind of says, well, here's a way. Do this, tithes and offerings. Test me in this, tithes and offerings. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven. Do we want God to throw open those floodgates and pour out so much blessing? That's the check. Test me. See if I'll do it. See, I'll prove it to you. I'll prove it to you. How much do we want it? Just a few final things about giving before we come to praying together. Give willingly. If, if you've turned up to this church for the first time this morning, you might think that all churches are interested in is your money. And, and it seems like that sometimes, doesn't it? You go past a church and there's a big thermometer outside and, and they need money to, to, to build or to do or whatever. Uh, uh, I've given you the impression that, hey, what we're about most is money. Uh, but no, we're not about that at all. And I'm hopefully going to undo all of that in just the next few things. Uh, I want to say very clearly, if you feel under any kind of compulsion to give, don't. Pray for the church treasurer who's just having hyper, hyperventilating up there for a minute. But hey, it's not about under, it's about your heart. It's about, it's about your heart. It's not about having to give. It's about your heart. It's about a heart change. It's about attitude, not action. That's what really matters. Some churches, you see, make it a rule. Hey, you join this church and you have to, you have to give your 10% and prove that's what you're doing. You could understand a church doing that, couldn't you? Because they're trying to take what God's Word says seriously. And you can't argue with that, in a way. We don't do that here. Because it's about your attitude. Much more than your action. And if your attitude isn't straight, that's a bigger problem than the amount. Because it's about our hearts. Each man should give what he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. Second comment would be this. We need to give in the light of the giver. Paul encourages people to excel in the grace of giving. We do that sometimes with people, don't we? Say, you've got a gift. Excel in it. Excel in the grace of giving. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 7. And then verse 9, Paul explains why. Why excel at giving? Because you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, for your sakes became poor so that you might become 
rich. There will have been times this morning when we might have been tempted to think, God wants how much? Some of you will have done a mental calculation about how much that might mean. Some of you will have wondered whether it's before tax or after tax. How much? It's because we've lost sight of the giver. Whenever we get into how much, whenever we get into the we've lost sight of the giver. There may be only one place to consider our giving and that's the foot of the cross. Don't get any ideas from Malachi that God is some kind of demanding God, will you? Saying give, 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 give all I want, 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 want. You'd misunderstand completely who he is. Towards the end of the book there was a promise of the one Jesus who would come. The greatest gift, the greatest giver. Everything is understood in the light of Jesus. Lay it all before Jesus at the foot of the cross. And if we're feeling less than generous, and sometimes we do, we've probably lost sight of the giver. And losing sight of the giver is a bigger problem. Is a bigger problem than the amount of our gifts. Which is probably why Paul adds at the end of another chapter about giving, he says, look, it's like this, thanks be to God. Bottom line's this, thanks be to God for his indescribable, utterly amazing, totally, overwhelmingly generous gift. Bottom line. If that be true, if God's gift to us is the context, the backdrop to all of our giving, then finally, I guess our giving needs to be sacrificially. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a sacrifice. So maybe we might say if it doesn't hurt, we're probably not giving enough. Don't shoot me for that. God's the giver and he gave sacrificially. And the people uh, were commended. I think I've got this verse somewhere. The people were commended. Here it is. People were commended in the Corinthian church because they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. It's such sacrificial giving that's been the mark of all the Old Testament revivals. You look at how God revived the people in Hezekiah's day. A great return to sacrificial giving and the blessing flowed like you wouldn't believe. Nehemiah, when he was uh, leading the people in the renewal, talked again about getting their giving back on track. The early church was so changed in their hearts that they sold their possessions and they gave to anyone as they had need. Now some of us here have given to people in need, haven't we? There will be very few of us here that have sold our possessions to give to someone in need, don't you think? Unless we're all doing wonderful things very quietly. Because it's not our MO. Not part of the world of grabbing and getting that we live in. And yet the early church was so changed in their hearts and no wonder revival was spreading like wildfire that that even the, the God of money had lost its grip on their lives. Arthur Wallace uh, makes the point that the emphasis in this passage is the word now. The authorised version, if any of you have that version of the Bible open in front of you, will notice that instead of saying test me in this, it says prove me now. Prove me now. And Arthur Wallace writes, let us be aware that as we pray for revival, we do not in our thinking defer it forever to some remote time in the future when God may be saying now is the accepted time. It is an imperfect faith that always relegates the desired blessing to a tomorrow that never comes. Today is the day for us to prove the now. Return to me. Hey, I'll return to you, says the Lord. And we go, how? How should we return? And God says, bring the whole store. 
Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Test me and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. Wow. Let's pray.